electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner. On day 149 of the coronavirus crisis, reopening optimism sends stocks surging. But is your safety still at risk? There's strong confidence on the part of our scientists that we can get a vaccine. The fight against the virus moves forward, with Merck making a major move. The NYSE reopens for business today. 100 more Apple stores reopening. Stocks respond as more of the economy opens up. How do we destroy the competitors? Lock them down. And new questions tonight from the market. Was closing down the economy the right thing to do? This CNBC special report starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome. Good to have you with us on this Tuesday night as we kick off a week where we're starting to see more of this country reopening. Apple announcing today it will reopen 100 more stores in the U.S. this week. The NHL unveiling a summer playoff format to end the shortened season. An airline ridership picking up big time this holiday weekend. The TSA screening their highest number of passengers in months. And just this morning, the New York Stock Exchange reopened its iconic trading floor after being closed for two months. Traders wore masks and followed social distancing rules. The optimism spilled over into Wall Street today. The Dow rising 530 points. The S&P was up 1.23%, a modest gain for the Nasdaq today. We do start this evening with CNBC contributor Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former head of the FDA. Of course, Dr. Gottlieb, hope you had a good holiday weekend. It's nice to see you. Thanks. Let's reassess uh, the reopening tonight. How do you feel uh, where we are right now? Well, look, I think I think it's been um, so far so good. We're seeing a bump up in cases and hospitalizations, but we expected that Um, certain states. You look at what's happening in District of Columbia, Virginia, Maryland. You see a slight increase. Alabama, Mississippi, Florida and Georgia were showing bump ups. Um, The data was flat over the weekend. Reporting around the weekends is notoriously unreliable. You get under reporting around the weekend. So you really need to look at this on a week by week basis and smooth out the data. We did see an uptick last week after two weeks of declines in hospitalizations. And that's really what we're focused on. And we're probably going to see some increases going into the summer. But I think as we get into the summer and a seasonal effect starts to take hold, hopefully that's going to be a backstop against spread. and We can do this successfully. Um, This is why governors prescribe doing this in stages that we can look at the data and adjust if we need to. You said today that you're concerned that some are looking at this as if it's an all clear. Were you referring to those photos and some of them over the weekend of large crowds gathering in some places shoulder to shoulder, no masks? 
Well, look, I think the biggest risk right now is that we become complacent. Um, people feel pent up. They want to get out. I understand that. We, I did, too, over the weekend. Um, but we need to still be careful when we go out. We need to try to reduce the number of times we go out. We need to be careful of our social interactions. We should be wearing masks and ha- practicing good hygiene. If people do that on a wide basis, that could really have an impact on the spread of this, con- the continued spread of this virus. But if people become complacent about those kinds of steps... That's when we could start to see um, the viral transmission really start to pick up. Professor Jeremy Siegel, uh, Dr. Gottlieb of the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, was on my noon show earlier today, said the following about the shutdowns. I'd like you to listen to that. And then if we could respond to that on the other side. I think in retrospect, we will look at the lockdowns as, 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 a, as the wrong policy. Social distancing masks were were right, and the CDC was really slow off the mark on that. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, we could have kept many more enterprises open and, and, and uh, relieved the, some, much of the seriousness, not all of it, of course. Uh, but, you know, history will, will show that, that we really, unfortunately, did not follow the right policy. Wondering what you think of that, Dr. Gottlieb, and whether the lockdowns went too far. Well, look, I think history is going to show something else. I think in the cities like New York, Detroit, Chicago, New Orleans, where there was really epidemic spread and it was out of control, we had no choice but to put in place the stay-at-home orders and the very stringent measures that we took. Um, the healthcare systems were effectively overwhelmed. New York City, for a period of time, was a COVID-only healthcare system. You couldn't get medical care outside of an emergency or COVID illness. And so we needed to break the epidemic in the cities where it was epidemic. I think the challenge was we didn't know where it was spreading. We didn't know where the epidemic was going to go to next because we just didn't have good information. We didn't have the testing in place. We didn't have reliable data. So we had to reach for a simultaneous national shutdown effectively because we couldn't target those interventions. Hopefully going into the fall, we're going to have outbreaks in the fall and we'll probably have cities that become epidemic. Hopefully we can target our interventions much more effectively because we'll know where the virus is spreading and we'll know where it isn't. And we'll be able to titrate our approach based on how much background transmission there is and we'll be in a better position. That's what we should be focusing on, trying to get those tools and interventions in place so that we don't have to reach for a simultaneous national shutdown when we have five, six, seven cities become epidemic, perhaps in the fall. Chuck talked about Georgia, Georgia earlier seeing a small uptick in, in hospitalizations. Georgia, of course, was the first state, Dr. Gottlieb, to reopen. And since late April, the growth in new cases there is actually pretty flat. And some would say that's evidence that perhaps we did go too far. Well, look, there are states that have done this successfully. And if you look at Georgia and Florida, you saw an uptick in the hospitalizations in the last week. We have to see what the data shows over the weekend. But you haven't seen a major surge in infections um, it could, this could be a seasonal effect because you're seeing across the Sun Belt and in the South, uh, infections not really go up as those states reopen and infections never really took off in certain states. We'll have to wait and see. I'm hopeful that, you know, these states can pull this off successfully. We want to see that happen across the entire country. I think as we go into the summer, as we go into July and August, we are going to see transmission break off and we can all take a little bit of a breather. That's what happened in 2009 with H1N1, which was also epidemic going into June. We really saw cases collapse in July and August. They came back in the fall, but we were all able to take a breather over that summer. And hopefully we'll be ready uh, for it this time uh, versus the, the, the onset of, of, of this from the beginning. Right. You, you said today that we need to define what a, quote, a new normal is. And I'm wondering what your definition of, of a new normal is tonight. 
Well, I think initially we need to implement the measures that we're doing right now. The social distancing, the mask wearing, people cutting down on their activity, trying to group uh, shopping visits, being mindful of who they who's in their social circle. Hopefully, as we continue and as we get a better sense of where this virus is and isn't spreading and as transmission comes down, we can all relax a little bit more. But I think there are certain things that we're going to do in perpetuity going forward. I think mask wearing is going to become far more common. I think we're going to de-densify offices. I think we're going to look for ways to try to de-densify schools and maybe not have entire populations of students intermingle but keep kids in smaller groups within the schools. I think that telework is going to become more popular, more than norm. I think you're going to see office-based work start to um, diminish. Um, people are going to not want to go into cities for office-based work. I think you're going to see a lot of things change in terms of what we do. Some of that's going to probably be permanent, um, and some of it's going to be a temporary phenomenon until we get to a vaccine and we can you know, get to a point where we have more immunity in the population, and this is less of a threat. We will get there. This will eventually be less of a threat. But we're probably going to have to get through one more cycle with this in the fall and maybe going into the winter until we get to the other side. It's interesting. Later this evening, in fact, we're going to have a conversation with the former Chicago mayor, Rahm Emanuel, about the very issue you're speaking about, about the future of what our cities are going to look like. I want you to stay with me uh, once again, Dr. Gottlieb, tonight, if you could. Big reason for today's Wall Street rally was new optimism. Drug makers are closing in on a vaccine with Merck now joining that hunt. CNBC's farmer reporter Meg Terrell speaking today with the CEO earlier this evening. Meg, good evening to you. Hi, Scott. Well, Merck comes to this race with a tremendous amount of credibility and experience in vaccine development, announcing today three different moves in COVID-19. One is in licensing an antiviral drug from Ridgeback Bio that's in phase one human trials, and then two different deals uh, on vaccines for COVID-19. The uh, first of which they plan to start human trials within just a few weeks. Now, they said they were very measured in the way that they approached uh, how they wanted to get into this. Ken Frazier telling me today they wanted a vaccine that could be deployed broadly, uh, one that has just a single dose needed to confirm protection, so no booster shots needed, and one where the technology has already been proven in people. And he said he found that with these two different vaccines. Um, he also said he's already starting to feel pressure from different governments around the world. Here's what he said about that. There is now geopolitical pressure. There are other countries that are asking for us to make sure that they are included in the first doses. We think the right thing to do is to look at population risk groups. So, for example, frontline healthcare workers, for example, elderly people, people who have comorbid conditions. We want to make sure that this vaccine gets to the people who are at highest risk. Now, of course, Merck is not the only one developing a vaccine. Uh, it plans to be in human trials by July with its first project, but there are already eight or so vaccines already in human testing, including the latest today, Novavax, just announcing it started human trials in Australia. So quite a few shots on goal. And, and Scott, history would tell us that's what's needed because not all of these vaccines are going to make it through the development process. Hopefully, back over to you. hopefully we get many scores uh, with those shots. Meg, I appreciate it. Thank you. Dr. Gottlieb, I bring you back in now. So how about that? You heard Meg's report. Where do we stand, do you think, tonight? It's really a remarkable moment. Every single major pharmaceutical company capable of developing a vaccine is now in the hunt, and many of them are pretty far along. Uh, Merck is using their Ebola vaccine platform to try to develop. That's one of the platforms they're using to try to develop a vaccine against COVID. The next big milestone is going to be a data card that we turn over on Oxford probably sometime in June. So we're going to get a look at some clinical data from that vaccine. That's the one that uh, AstraZeneca is now partnered with. 
And so we're going to start getting data all through June and into July of clinical data on these vaccines. It's going to give us a real clear indication of which ones look like they're generating robust immunity. But we've already seen enough data from some of the early clinical studies with these vaccines and the animal studies to suggest that one or more of these is going to work. Um, the Merck approach is using a virus to deliver the protein that the body then develops antibodies against, that protein, that spike protein that we've talked about before. One of the downsides of using a viral vector to deliver that protein inside the body might be that you can't redose the vaccine. So what we're going to see is a lot of these vaccines are going to come along. They'll be used once, and then we'll have to re-engineer the vaccines for the subsequent season. But that's okay. Um, we're going to get one or more vaccines, I think, heading into the fall and the winter and probably be ready to mass inoculate the population sometime in 2021. If we have multiple vaccines coming online at the same time, how do we decide which ones are actually used on, on different people? If, if you have multiple vaccines in your toolbox, how do you decide which one to take out? Yeah, it's a good question. I think what's going to happen is we'll probably see multiple vaccines get approved at the same time. I think that these vaccines are largely coming through development at the same time. The notion that one company is ahead of the other by two or three weeks, that's really not operative once you start running the big clinical trials. And so we're probably going to have more than one vaccine. We hope we will. We really need to have more than one vaccine because I don't think one manufacturer can supply the entire globe, let alone the entire United States. And what we might find is different vaccines might be indicated for different populations. And so you might reserve certain vaccines for a younger population, certain vaccines for an older population, and an older population where older individuals might have a harder time developing an immune response to a vaccine. You might want the vaccine that, that's more immunogenic in an older person as opposed to a younger person. So I think that we're going to start to see some differentiation between these vaccines. But we have other markets where there's multiple entrants in the market and each vaccine slightly differentiated. And they use somewhat interchangeable. Um, there's certain advantages and disadvantages to different vaccines, but they're all relatively operative and used relatively interchangeably. What do you make of, of the, the comments that Ken Frazier, the Merck CEO, was was discussing about already hearing from uh, different governments around the world saying, hey, you know, make sure we get ours first. How are we going to deal with that issue? Well, look, we've seen this before in 2009 with H1N1 when, when nations effectively nationalized their supplies and nationalized the supplies that were destined for other countries. So we had vaccine for the U.S. being produced in Canada and Australia, and they held on to those supplies until they were able to vaccinate their populations. And then they released the supply to the United States. We did the same thing to the United Kingdom. We were manufacturing some H1N1 vaccine here in the, in the United States for the U.K., and we held on to that. It required a phone call from U.K. officials to the White House to get that released. So you, you see this kind of behavior, and I suspect you're going to see some of this again. Um, it's important that nations have a supply, a domestic manufacturing capacity, and a lot of nations are are seeking to do that right now. I think that it is important that we make equitable distribution. Ken's remarks were right on point. We need to make sure that we get the vaccine first and foremost in the highest risk populations globally and the places where there's epidemics. We might not be experiencing an epidemic at the time that the vaccine comes online, but another country might be. And we need to make sure there's allocation to account for that. But, but by and large, countries are going to want to make sure they have enough supply to vaccinate their own populations. And I don't know that we, we would be surprised by that behavior. It certainly is what's happened in the past. Yeah, interesting part of the conversation uh, for certain. I have some Twitter questions uh, once again for you, Dr. Gottlieb, and some good ones at that. Uh, our first uh, question for you, I had the coronavirus. I also tested positive for the antibodies, had a high antibody reading. Am I now immune and or if I do get it again, would it be less severe? Have there been uh, incidents of healthcare workers getting sick, recovering and then getting sick again? 
I think most people who've had the virus and recovered can expect a period of immunity probably around a year if this virus behaves like every other virus and every other coronavirus. And certainly if you get tested for the antibodies and you have a high titer, that's suggested that you'll have residual immunity. Let me ask you another question about a vaccine that plays off what we were just talking about. Uh, Nelson writing to you with so many companies around the world in this race to a vaccine. What will happen when the first one, quote, wins the race? Can't there be various levels of efficacy among the competition? So what do you do with the efficacy issue? Well, I think what we're likely to see, it's a good question. I mean, we don't know what we're going to see, frankly, but I think what we're likely to see is vaccines that perform better in certain groups. So there's going to be differentiation. There might be one vaccine that's sort of an overall winner in terms of its absolute efficacy, its ability to produce immunogenicity, but it might have other downsides. So, for example, the viral vector vaccines might might be more immunogenic. They might produce a more robust immune response, but people who've been exposed to those viruses in the past might have antibodies to the virus itself, and they also might not be able to be redosed with those vaccines. So that's a potential downside. So you might not want to take that vaccine first, knowing you can only take it once. So I think there's going to be trade-offs with these vaccines, and I'm hopeful we'll see more than one vaccine succeed. We really need to see more than one get over the finish line. And lastly, as we continue to talk about the path forward and the reopening of business in this country, Summer asks you about the transmission of the coronavirus by secondhand smoke. I have relatives who work on a casino floor. Well, there's nothing to suggest that that the secondhand smoke would be any different than any other kind of respiratory droplet transmission. There is data to suggest from mostly from influenza that secondhand smoke reduces your immune response and makes you more susceptible to respiratory pathogens. So if you're getting a lot of secondhand smoke, you might be more susceptible to coronavirus. And There's actually been clinical studies looking at kids in particular and flu that have demonstrated that. Interesting. Dr. Gottlieb, appreciate your time. As always, we'll see you tomorrow night. That's Thanks Dr. Lot. Scott Gottlieb joining us once again tonight. This CNBC special report is just getting started. Next tonight, how hospitals are tackling the problem of not having enough equipment when they need it most. See what they learned and how they're fixing it. Plus, now we're feeding between eight and 900 families six days a week. Getting and giving help in a place where it's needed most. And the future of the great American city. First, what this country looks like on the 149th day of this global pandemic. the horizon for financial markets at pgim it's a question that over 1400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals specialized across asset classes but united in collaboration our teams provide global and local expertise our investments shape tomorrow today pursue your tomorrow with pgim a leading global asset manager Welcome back on day 149 of the crisis. Here are some more headlines on the virus tonight. Google plans to reopen its offices starting July 6th. We're up to 10 percent of its workers and looks to increase capacity to 30 percent by September. 
Barbershops and hair salons will be allowed to reopen in parts of California with guidelines like requiring masks for both customers and employees. And tomorrow, Disney and SeaWorld present their plans to reopen their Orlando theme parks to a local task force. Well, during the crisis, hospitals around the country found themselves in bidding wars with other hospitals desperate for protective gear. Today, hospital supply buyer Premier struck a deal with a key maker of surgical masks. Meg Terrell with us tonight with Premier's CEO, Susan DeVore. Meg, I'll send it back to you. Scott, thanks so much. And Susan DeVore, thank you for being here with us. You know, it's a really fascinating deal because it's not just you who's buying this minority stake, but also 15 of your members who are health systems, hospitals. I mean, really buying an ownership stake in the largest domestic supplier of face masks. Just tell us about how this deal came together. You know, Meg, uh, Premier serves 4,000 hospitals, 175,000 other providers of care, and it is really important for us to be able to help them get all the supplies they need to protect their employees and to protect their patients and their communities. 15 of our healthcare systems, representing hundreds of hospitals across the country, came together and said, we need to, we need to take control here and we need to bring more of this manufacturing back to the U.S., we found this company in Texas a few months ago, and we've been in discussions with them ever since. And the idea is these health systems make long-term commitments to buy the supplies from this company. This company increases their pr production capacity. Uh, Prestige Ameritech only sells to uh, the U.S., so it's 100% U.S.-based. And they manufacture critical face masks and N95 masks and surgical masks. And so we felt like it was really important to push this forward. Well, sitting where you sit, you have a view that most people don't into the supply chain. Tell us what you observed at sort of the height of these bidding wars between states, between hospitals trying to get the supplies that they needed. And in some cases, did you observe this necessity really to bid against one another, making the situation worse because it was driving prices up? All of that is true. When you only get 5% of your face masks in the U.S., manufactured in the U.S., this applies to pharmaceutical ingredients too, where less than 20% is manufactured in the U.S. And you have a pandemic and you have over 200 countries that all need the same stuff. Everybody, we were competing with countries, we were competing with states, government was competing with private sector. And the challenge for hospitals and healthcare systems is they just needed to take care of patients. And there was not a lot of transparency about how decisions were being made where that scarce product was going. And the demand increased from normal loads to 17 to 30 times uh, the normal level of demand. And so our goal here in doing it with the provider health systems is we're gonna bring transparency to all of it. We're gonna bring um, commitment to all of it. Price did go up. You know, these masks used to cost 35 to 45 cents a piece. In its heyday, that price went up as high as $8. It's now come down to around three to $6, but we had a, a problem with too much of our manufacturing uh, offshore, and we need to have a diversified supply chain in the U.S., but also near shore and some diversification. Uh, we think it's a mistake to bring it all to the U.S. So this is part of a bigger strategy. 
Yeah, I mean, there is such a push right now to um, create more of a supply chain that is domestic within the United States. And as you mentioned, we're seeing that also in the pharmaceutical industry and, and seeing a lot of uh, pushback to that. A great story in Stat News today about how the pharmaceutical lobby is pushing back against potential legislation trying to um, encourage or require these companies to make their products in the U.S. I mean, what kinds of moves are you observing across the healthcare industry in terms of trying to get supply uh, from the United States? Where else will we see this? You know, I think that we do need um, some involvement of governments to incent manufacturing back to the U.S. But I don't think we need to put all of our eggs in one basket because then you'd just be, you know, one natural disaster away from compromising the supply chain if it were all manufactured in the U.S. So our our idea, and, and, and at Premier, we are talking to all of our manufacturers as well as federal and state governments about having at least one domestic supplier, having at least three suppliers, global and domestic, nearshore, offshore, for critical products that are always going to be necessary in any kind of epidemic, pandemic, bioterrorism. And so I think it's going to be a balance, and I think we need to be thoughtful about how we spread it out and how we make sure we have a diversified access to product. And I think manufacturers want that too. I think the worry is that we might swing the, the pendulum too far in one direction. Mm. And of course, you know, this, this guarantees a long-term supply given perhaps a steady supply. Uh, are there solutions in place or being put in place if there is again a massive spike in demand for this equipment if we face another pandemic scenario or another spike in the fall potentially? Well, we are bracing for, you know, future rounds of COVID-19. All our health systems are reopening all of their surgeries. The, the demand for these products is going to increase. To give you some context, these 15 health systems alone uh, have committed to 46 million uh, masks a year, 46 million units of product, and we'll be ramping up to 100 million. Uh, to serve many of our other members. And so I think that as this plays out, it will play out in waves. And even with a vaccine, we are going to have syringe shortages. We've already got gown shortages. And, and the, you know, the approach is to get in front of it, figure out what the next wave of demand is going to be and try to ramp up that production all around the world, uh, but a lot more of it domestically to, to meet the needs. All right, Susan DeVore, thanks for being here with us tonight. Thank you. Scott, back over to you. All right, Meg, we appreciate it very much. Thank you, uh, Susan DeVore, as well. Well, since the lockdown began in March, nearly 39 million Americans have filed for unemployment, a devastating number never seen before in this country. Tonight, we want to show you what these unprecedented job losses mean for communities. Tonight, food pantry volunteers at a church in Queens, New York, in their own words. Normally, we'd be feeding about 500 families in a weekend, which for us was, you know, putting a dent in the hunger in the community. And now we're feeding between eight and 900 families six days a week. In the past four weeks, we've given out close to three quarters of a million pounds of food, which for our small little operation is insanity. Um, and we probably could have done close to double that if we had the food. Our food has increased from here to here, but our need has increased from, I'll just go off the screen. And the food extends all the way into different parts of this building, into the classrooms, into the auditorium, into the cafeteria, into the gym. We're actually breaking down walls here. 
to make room for food. You know, the faster we get it in, faster it goes out. We, we've had to create a whole phone bank upstairs because our phones have been ringing literally off the hook because there's just so many people online and so many people online that we would never see online normally. Lined up because they're, they need food for their grandma and they can't afford to get it for them. So many different, different people that we're hearing from. Sometimes I have to just look at the map of people who we have delivered to to say, hey, we're, we're, we're making a difference. You certainly are. More good people doing extraordinary things. We, of course, wish them well. There is a lot more ahead tonight on this CNBC special report. Next tonight, the future of the American metropolis once the crisis fades. The former mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, is with us tonight. Plus, inside a Miami hotspot forced to close the doors. See how the owner is managing now that customers are allowed back in once again. We're back in two minutes. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Tonight, the future of America's cities. Former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel is with us live. Plus, business face-to-face. One owner's comeback story. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. We welcome you back after a rally on Wall Street today. Let's get you caught up on where futures are currently trading. Early, of course, we are slightly green, though, across the board. Today, investors growing optimistic about the economy reopening and the prospects for a vaccine for coronavirus. The Dow rising more than 500 points, the S&P 500 adding more than 1%, and at one point hit its highest level since the beginning of March. Financials were the best-performing sector of the day, with big gains from Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, and American Express leading the way. From the top tonight, the CEO of Winnebago and two owners of big league sports teams all on their paths forward. Small business uh, being active and being and employing people. I think the league is being thoughtful and creative about ways to get, um, you know, to get get us playing again with schedules that maybe involve a little less travel. Um, but we want to play in our own ballparks. We don't want to play in a, in a tournament setting like uh, like the NHL or NBA are looking at. You know, obviously what's driving this are, you know, people are are coming out of the stay-at-home or shelter-in-place restrictions that were put on in the month of April and early May, and, and they want to socially distance in a safe uh, but yet memorable way. But as long as we open up the country in a very uh, safe way, uh, I think they are ready uh, to deliver for their customers, and many of them have actually changed their business models to be able to work in this uh, virtual world. That's the view from the top tonight. Big city mayors, meantime, throughout the country have a lot to deal with, as you know right now. The immediate problems caused by the outbreak enacting rules to prevent the spread 
and finding a path forward for their economically besieged cities. We're talking about more of that tonight with the former mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel. Mayor, welcome back. It's nice to see you again. Thanks. Nice to see you, Scott. How much do you think our cities are going to be changed by all of this? Well, first of all, they're going to be changed, but, you know, this is still a fundamental. Cities are where people like to gather for economic, intellectual, and cultural energy of their economies, and they have a gravitational pull that won't be lost. There will be an adjustment through this period of time, but the core central purpose of cities will still exist, and making adjustments moving forward is going to be something that cities will do, and that's how they'll survive and come back. But a lot of people, I mean, cities, let me say it this way. Cities have been around for over 2,000 years. They survived a lot worse, rebuilt and come back, reinterpret themselves, reimagine what they can be. They've gone from steel industrial to tech, medical centers, etc. The universities that anchor cities, the diversity of economy and populations that anchor cities, that's going to still be the strength going forward. The question is, is, is whether that's changed in and of itself. I want to read you something uh, from a piece I saw today on, on Medium that I thought was quite poignant for our conversation tonight. Uh, quote, mm-hmm. on the nation's current trajectory, one of the most probable post-COVID future scenarios in our cities is stark austerity with empty coffers for the very services and qualities that make for an appealing urban life. Well-paying jobs, robust public transportation, concerts, museums, good schools, varied restaurants, boutiques, well-swept streets, and modern office space. The glossy megacities blueprint will need serious modification. What do you make of that statement? Well, you know, I think, let me take on the austerity side. I think that's why the debate in Washington is going to be very key. I have a theory of what I would call a grand bargain, uh, which is that the federal government should take over, like they do in these crises, Medicaid and unemployment insurance in a big way. That would free up annually $250 billion at the state level on an annual basis. But the bargain is the states invest in education, they invest in transportation, infrastructure that are starving for resources. And to me, that's the right kind of rebalancing that should happen here. I do think, uh, you know, one of the great things, like in the city of Chicago, it's known as a city in the garden. We have parks throughout the city of Chicago that make the quality of life, as Burnham originally planned, a great public health and a great uh, benefit. The cultural scene will come back, and it will be reinterpreted how you do it. In a classic way, we did this thing in the summers that was called theater. Uh, it was actually a night out in the park where you had dance performances, you had theater, etc. Rather than a closed space, you reinterpret how you do it. That's what, and then cities are very good at reimagining, reinterpreting, and they will get through this. It will not be just a flip of the switch. There will be a process that happens that uh, will actually allow cities to get that. And I do think, though, and there's the piece that you just read really quickly, you're going to need resources to do this. You cannot do it by trying to starve a city of financial resources. Universities will play a central role. The diversity of the workforce, as I said, will play a central role. And I think a re-bargain between Washington and the states and localities would also help, where they take on other responsibilities, freeing up resources so cities can make those critical investments in both human capital and physical capital that make a city much more livable and a place where we can call it where you live, work, and play. This, this, this but you'll also learn... I'm sorry, Scott. No, no, you fin- finish your thought. Finish your thought. I do think, though, you're going to find you're not just going to go back as if this was a period of time, zap, and you're back. You are, you yourself, myself, we're going to work at different hours. We're going to work from different places. 
how we uh, seek entertainment and partnership and social. We are ultimately social beings, and that's why cities are the longest-serving kind of political and social structure that's been around since the beginning of time. And so the idea that, oh, cities are going to empty out, it's not true. They're going to go through a reinterpretation, a readaptation, and they will survive not only, and they'll probably, if they do it right, with a game plan and a blueprint, they can come out of this much, much stronger. I do want to discuss with you the future of, of what work may look like. And I'd like you to listen to a comment made earlier this evening by Dr. Scott Gottlieb in a conversation we had. I thought it was perfect for uh, your appearance tonight. Let's listen to Dr. Gottlieb. Uh, Mr. Merrill, we can react on the other side. Sure. People are going to not want to go into cities for office-based work. I think you're going to see a lot of things change in terms of what we do. Some of that's going to probably be permanent, um, and some of it's going to be a temporary phenomenon until we get to a vaccine and we can you know, get to a point where we have more immunity in the population, and this is less of a threat. We will get there. This will eventually be less of a threat. But we're probably going to have to get through one more cycle with this in the fall and maybe going into the winter until we get to the other side. How about that, Mr. Mayor? Yeah, well, here's how I look at it and hear what Scott says. Uh, and he's probably right about that from a medical standpoint. There's been no pandemic when you go through the last 20 years. We've had four or five of these that doesn't have another second kind of kick to it. One of the things, my view, is what are we doing to prepare? What do you say to the J.C. Penny worker, the Neiman Marcus worker, that is not going to come back to that job? My view is you want to have unemployment, great. I want you to use the six months you're at home, reskill as a computer coder. Reskill as a cybersecurity analyst and, uh, and writer. Those are jobs that are always going to be in need and have somebody come out of this process with a career. So we're using the time not just merely to give them unemployment checks, which are needed, but also with a skill set so they can thrive in the future. I think to me, the question is in the same way for those individuals, we would say to the businesses. I, one of the things that has struck me here, look, Target's going to be fine. Walmart's going to be fine. Amazon's going to be fine. But to the small businesses, the families that have three generations working in a restaurant, that that's going to be the nest egg that's also going to send the kids to college. What do we provide them to come back to? And just flipping on the switch, the restaurants won't be the same. So how do they thrive and continue to offer their services, and which are so vital? And to me, those are essential things that we have to ask ourselves. And how do we make that rebuilding effort possible and invest in both the skills, infrastructure, and the opportunity to create, whether it's your business or your opportunity to succeed going forward. And I think we should have a strategy so we come out of this much, much stronger than we did going into it. And I think it's revealed some weaknesses, but it also revealed some great opportunities to move forward. A lot more people are doing college online. There's a, price, there's a skill set. You can also do six-month certificates that give people an opportunity to go back into the economy with not just the opportunity for a job, but a career they can make a lifetime of uh, income and economic opportunity for them and their family. That's how I would look at this. Mayor, I appreciate your time. You be well. We'll see you again soon. You too, Scott. All right. Take thank care. you. That's uh, Rahm Emanuel joining us. Here's what else is coming up. He has a brewery in the heart of Miami. Forced to shut down at the start of the crisis. See where things stand next. Inside the tank. Plus, one NBA star's slam dunk move. Before the break, what our world looks like on the 149th day of the pandemic.
American businesses are reopening, bringing companies now face to face with customers once again. Back with us tonight is Carlos Padron. He's the founder of the Tank Brewing Company down in Miami, Florida. Carlos, welcome back. It's nice to see you again. Scott, thank you for having us back. Tell me how you're doing down there. Well, other than this weekend that it's been raining, torrential rain for like three, uh, literally for three days down here, it feels like uh, we're slowly coming back, right? Uh, more importantly, in addition to us, you know, a lot of our accounts are starting to open up again. Uh, tomorrow in my, at the city of Miami here, uh, a lot of restaurants and bars are opening, so we're really happy for them and 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 happy, you know, to see people getting, hopefully, getting their jobs back done. Yeah, I I think I saw a small smile on your face, so that's certainly good to see. You're back in business. You're doing what you love. How do you think it's going to go from here? Well, you know, we think I think it's a two. We look at it as a two battle thing. The first battle is was, you know, the legal battle of making sure to meet all the requirements. Now it's the second battle, making sure that our customers feel comfortable coming back, right? Luckily, again, in our case, we didn't furlough any of our employees. They all stayed around. They've been working extremely hard uh, the last 60, 70 days. So they're, they're comfortable working. They've been working, doing deliveries, doing everything. So now it's just uh, so we feel comfortable that our employees, they've been part of our process in establishing all the procedures that we're having, so they feel comfortable about it. So now it's, you know, making sure that the customers feel comfortable about it. And uh, and slowly, you know, slowly we're starting to see that complying with all the rules that the county has set for us. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, I think I see some of the changes behind you. Looks like you can't be up against the bar, clearly. I see a red line on the floor uh, over your left shoulder, along with some tape on the floor. What's the experience going to be like when you're, when you're in, your, in the tank? So, so to be honest, maybe we've taken it to an extra extreme. Extreme, I would tell you. Uh, you know, we have a, a new Casey room manager and Michael, and we've been working even before the rules were set down here, studying what other countries and states were doing it. And so, we literally have have gone probably more than what the rules require. We're taking temperature of the customers as they come in. Uh, we're setting the the white tape that you see. It's kind of what we're saying is the, kind of the safe zone, right? Once they get in, they have to wear a mask. Once they're in that wide area, they can remove their mask. That's where they'll be served their, their dinner or and, uh, in addition to the beers. If they go out of that area, we're asking them to put on their mask again. Uh, the red area right now, it's the rules that, you know, no bar seating. So, you know, don't go into those areas. And so there's a lot of tapes and visuals just as a constant reminder uh, to our guests, uh, to not only, you know, for their safety or employee safety, but also to be respectful of other guests. Right. And so, uh, probably a little bit more, but luckily our space allows us to do all of this. Yeah. I think the last time we spoke, you had applied for the PPP loan, uh, but you were still waiting on the money. Did, did you ever get it? We did. We got it like a day or two after being on, on, on your show. Right. And, and in addition to, being on your show, I must say that, you know, other in addition to getting a lot of the support from local chains such as Milam's, Total Wines, uh, that we've got in Whole Foods, Fresh Market, uh, you know, we after being on your show, and thank you for that, uh, you know, Publix, Winn-Dixie, and Sedano's also, you know, uh, we've been able to talk to them, and I think they're going to help us out, and I think it's going to be a great support, right, to help us sell in, in what we call the off-premise 
uh, situation. Well, are all private stores. I'm glad to hear it, and and I, I certainly wish you well. We'll check in with you again soon. Scott, thank thank you very much, and and thank you for everything. Yeah. You guys highlighting us and, and helping us out. And by the way, great great show. I, I think you had today in the afternoon uh, with the professor. We enjoyed it a lot seeing at your halftime report. Oh, you're a good man. I, I appreciate that so much. Uh, we certainly stand with you. Okay, you be well, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you very much. All right, that's Carlos Padron of the Tank joining us today. One NBA star's idea of helping a restaurant is coming up next. Back, a big-time assist from Cleveland Cavs center Andre Drummond has us applauding tonight. He left a waitress at the Che restaurant in Delray Beach, Florida, a $1,000 tip on a $164 bill. Now that is a good tip. It's a great way to help a restaurant. Another way to do it, you can tweet me, at Scott Wapner, CNBC. Use the hashtag ThanksForTheGrub with the name and town of your favorite restaurant. You can even send us a picture, and we'll show it on TV. Tonight, we give shout-outs to the following restaurants. Sante in Matthews, North Carolina. The Caribbean Grill in Boca Raton, Florida. Gelston House in East Haddam, Connecticut. The Twin Lakes Inn in Twin Lakes, Colorado. And Le Marais, not too far from here, Midtown Manhattan. Use the hashtag, thanks for the grub, by the way, and please keep those coming. On day 149 of the crisis, here are the latest headlines tonight. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says Congress will likely decide on a new stimulus bill in the next month. Consumer confidence rose in May as the economy began to reopen. The Dow was up more than 500 points today. For all of us here at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Please stay well. I'll see you tomorrow at noon on the Halftime Report. Right now, stay tuned for Shark Tank, which is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.